0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Welcome to the New Books in Israel podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Rachel Rojansky, Associate Professor of Judaic Studies at Brown University. We are here today to discuss her new book, Yiddish in Israel. A History, published by Indiana University Press 2020. Rachel, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you.
1: It's an honor to be here today.
0: Thank you. I'm very touched by the opportunity to interview you. And I'd like to begin by asking you to please tell us about yourself. Can you share something about your interest in Yiddish and how it emerged?
1: Okay. So um, I was born and raised in Tel Aviv, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, Um, the first Hebrew city. Uh, uh, My parents were um, from Eastern Europe. My mom came to pre-state Palestine as a student at the Hebrew University and she was from Lithuania. She, of course she knew Yiddish, but she didn't have any special interest in it. My father was a survivor. My father came uh, uh um weeks before the proclamation of the state as a survivor and uh he was older um he lo- he lost his family during the holocaust and um he was from eastern poland which used to be uh before world war 1 used to be the pale of settlement um the russian empire um from the town of bialystok which was i mean uh, a renowned Jewish center, and um, Jews over there spoke Yiddish, not Polish. And he loved to speak Yiddish; he was a native speaker in four languages, like many people from this from that region. And um, my parents married in Tel Aviv in the fifties, and they spoke among themselves Yiddish. They meticulously spoke to me Hebrew only. But you know, when a child grows up in, uh, you know, in a family that speaks another language, the, child's, the child picks the language and they yes. understood the Yiddish. But it was very clear that um, they speak among themselves Yiddish. To me, to me, they speak Hebrew only, never ever, not even once spoke to me Yiddish. And uh, Yiddish is a language that is spoken at home. And with other East European Jews not, not with uh, Israeli born people. And um, when I was in high school, uh, there was an option to, to, do, um, uh, a ste- uh, to do an on- kind of honors thesis instead of one of the, of the finals of high school. And I wanted to do something about the Holocaust. And the teacher was supposed, and was my advisor, asked me, do you know Yiddish? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, yes, because, you know, I understood what my parents were talking at home.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he suggested that I will do something about Arthur Ziegelborn, you know, the who committed suicide in 1943 okay. uh, as a protest to the, ah, to the silence of the world. And I started working in Yiddish and I didn't know Yiddish. I mean, uh, understanding what your parents say at home is one thing and reading um, historical uh, sources is another thing. And I started learning myself, teaching myself Yiddish. And in the end, I knew how to read Yiddish. And I did this, and it was a success. But then I wasn't interested in Yiddish anymore. I went to college, I studied Jewish history, and I didn't want to hear anything about Yiddish anymore. And um, later, when I did, and I did my master's thesis in Israel uh, in American Jewish history, nothing to do with Yiddish. But then I, found myself looking for the the Yiddish-speaking Jews in America, and I ended up doing my PhD on the history of labor Zionism in America, and it was not only a Yiddish-speaking movement, but also a Yiddish-supporting movement, and then uh, I published a book about it, and then I decided that I want to go on and uh, to do research on the history of Yiddish.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. What an, what an inspiring story. I really appreciate you sharing that. How did you become inspired by the topic of this book, Yiddish Cultural Expression in Israel?
1: So, um, <laughs> this is also something that happened. I finished my book and I mean, the book came out. I mean, it's a very big book about labor Zionism in America. Unfortunately, it's in Hebrew, not in English. And I was, um, I wanted to do a second book. And I was thinking of, I had all kinds of ideas. And then one evening I was sitting, I was sitting at home and there was on channel, on channel eight in Israeli TV, there was um, kind of talk show about Yiddish. And um, the speakers, uh, there were some of them were scholars, some were journalists, but not scholars of Yiddish. And they started talking about Yiddish in Israel and about Yiddish in general. And I didn't like what I heard. So a few days later, I sent a, an, an article to the literary uh, supplement of arets It was published on Friday. And to my surprise, the next week there were, you know, responses, people responded and, uh, a heated debate started about Yiddish in Israel, and then I said, this is my next book.
0: Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. You conclude the book with the following words. It would seem, then, that the long and winding story of Yiddish in Israel, its struggles and successes, is not over. The ambivalence demonstrated by both state and society in Israel's first years, though often seen as simply destructive, provided Yiddish culture with a space in which it could not only survive, but continue developing and creating in the Israeli environment. Today, the uniqueness of Yiddish, its history and literature still attracts young Israelis. The last word of its story has not been said. Can you explain why you chose to end the book with this insight?
1: Uh, because I, th- I, I do believe that the last word has not been said because um, I will talk about it later. I think that one of the most interesting uh, developments of Yiddish is that it attracts uh, the interest of young intellectuals who very seriously learn the language and study the literature. And we have the last decade, uh, there has been uh, um, published, I think about four or five novels by young Israelis born in Israel, raised in Israel. Uh, I don't think they have a personal connection to Yiddish novels that are about that, that uh, the plot happens in a Yiddish speaking environment. The heroes, the protagonists, and all the heroes are Yiddish speakers. And I can give you even some examples, 2011, Matan Chirmoni, Hebrew, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew publishing company. This is the name in Hebrew, Hebrew publishing company. It's um, about Yiddish in America, at the beginning of the 20th century. And then the same writer wrote uh, a book that is called Arba Ratzoni, Hebrew for all lands which alludes to the foreign council in Poland. And it's about a Yiddish writer who lives, there is a street in Tel Aviv, not, not very far from where I, I grew up, which is called Arba on the name of this council. A Yiddish writer that uh, lives on that street. And it's modeled after after, after the, um, the novel. And then in 2017, another young um, writer, Yad Biran, Uh, published a book which is called in Hebrew laughing with the lizards it's uh, it's an expression uh, in Yiddish which is uh, you laugh but it's a bitter laugh a collection of short stories also about the world of Yiddish so they are all young people their heroes are funny amusing but and in that way they actually coincide with the image of Yiddish as as a funny language which I hope we'll talk about it later, but they are not ridiculous. They are not ludicrous. They are funny in the good way. They are, uh, they are treated with a lot of respect. So, uh, and also there was um, a short movie about it's called Betavim, um, the home of my father about, new, about a new immigrant. It's holy Yiddish with a special lodge dialect. So, I mean, there is an interest and it's an intellectual interest and it integrates in the Israeli literary scene and in, in Israeli liter- cultural scene. And uh, another thing is that over the years, the last year, the last decade, uh, a significant number of translations from Yiddish uh, were published in Hebrew. Uh, some of them of Sholem Aleichem, classic uh, classic Yiddish. And um, uh, there was also and a few days ago, I mean, really a few days ago, a new book came out. It's called in Hebrew, uh, it's in English, I would translate it, a bouquet of snow, and it's um, a big anthology of Yiddish poetry translated into Hebrew. So the process is still continuing, is, is going on. Now, we don't know what will happen, but this is really very important seeds that are planted in the Israeli literary uh, arena. So I think this is, this is how I understand the, um, the process.
0: What do you see as the future of Yiddish in Israel?
1: You are asking me if people who speak Yiddish, <laughs> it's hard to believe. Uh, wow. Even the ultra-Orthodox, you know, only the, only the Hasidim speak Yiddish. Mm-hmm. The other yeshivot, they move to Hebrew. Also in America, they speak English. Yes. But Yiddish is, um, is uh, um, a source of inspiration. Yiddish is an academic field. Yiddish is uh, um, part of the, of the Israeli Hebrew literature. I think it will, um, I think it may, may be that it will be part of the Israeli literature even in the future. Another thing, another comment, I mean, said is that there are many Yiddish words that are embedded in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, and people don't even know that it comes from, uh, from Hebrew, and they use it in some in, in Hebrew translation, which sometimes it's very funny. And also some of them got a new a new meaning, but Yiddish exists inside the Hebrew and many, many proverbs, many expressions are actually translated from, uh, from Hebrew, from Yiddish, I'm sorry. Many, many, uh, um, m- many, many proverbs are, are many, many expressions are translated to, from Yiddish and people don't even know that they are translated from Yiddish. They take it for granted that it's, it's the Hebrew, which it's not.
0: Wow, thank you for sharing that insight. If Israel's official language was Yiddish rather than Hebrew, how would Israel's social history have evolved differently, if at all?
1: This is something that could not have happened mm-hmm. because the state of Israel, I mean, grew out of the Zionist movement. Mm-hmm. Hebrew was the crowning jewel of the Zionist ideology.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So uh, this is, uh, ideologically, it could never happen. Yes. The whole idea of the Jewish state was uh, a Hebrew state. Even, you know, uh, there are all kinds of expressions. The Jewish law, we call it mishpat ivri, but it doesn't mean that it's in Hebrew. It comes from the Zionist connection. Shoter ivri, a Hebrew soldier i'm sorry a hebrew, a hebrew policeman yeah yes it's not it's not a hebrew speaking it's a zionist expression zionist and hebrew are two sides of the same equation are uh, they not uh, you can't separate them hebrew is part of the land of israel you're going back to the land of israel which is the land of hebrew this is the ancient jewish language This is the language of the Jewish prayers. Jews everywhere pray from the same siddur, from the same prayer book, which is in Hebrew. And even, you know, if you go back to my, my Zionists, my population in America, that I I spent so much time with them. So I, I look at them as if they were mine. (laughs) So, and they even wrote an article about their attitude to Yiddish. They did not support Yiddish. They developed Yiddish they created uh, the Yiddish schools in America. They were the first before uh, before the boom. They were the first to create the Yiddish schools in America. And uh, also they, when they discussed the question, the ideological question, what is the national language of the Jewish people? After a long discussion that took years, they reached the conclusion that the language of the Jews, of the Polizion, the labor Zionists, in the diaspora is, J- is Yiddish. But when we go to Israel, when there will be a Jewish state, the language will be Hebrew. Interesting. And even the, C- the Chernowitz conference in 1908 that wanted to make Yiddish as the, the to make Yiddish as the national, the, the national Jewish language, eventually, and this is very famous. Eventually, they came to the conclusion that Yiddish is a national Jewish language. Mm -hmm. Hebrew is the Jewish language traditionally, so this could not have happened. Plus, you mentioned yourself that there are Jews all over the world who don't know Yiddish; they have their own Jewish languages.
0: Yes, very interesting. Can you tell us a little little bit about Mordechai Tsanin? Who was he in the context of? Yiddish expression in contemporary Israel.
1: Okay. Lorde Chaitzani was a very interesting man. I really feel privileged. He, lived, he was born in 1906 and died in 2009. He lived to 103. And I was privileged to meet him several times, which I'm, it's really a privilege. He was a, a very interesting man. Even I first met him when he was in, in his mid 90s, late 90s. He was a very strong man even when he was at this age. So historically, Tzanin is um they called him um the um the master of Yiddish press in Israel. Uh they called him the founding, I mean the Yiddish speaker, they called him our founding father. And um even when he died, there was um, an obituary that um, the title was Tzanin meant Yiddish, which means in Yiddish, Tzanin means Yiddish. So he was the founder of the main Yiddish newspapers and uh, the strongest and the most significant fighter for Yiddish and in a way, I think he was one of the two most important people in the Yiddish scene in Israel. The other one was Avram Sutzke, famous poet. I assume we'll talk about him later. So Tanin was born in 1903 in Poland. Since a young age, he wanted to, he had some aspirations to become a Yiddish writer. And already in the twenties and mid thirties, he published stories, short stories in Yiddish. And he worked as an administrator in the Yiddish uh, school in Warsaw. When the war broke out, he ran eastward uh, from Warsaw to Vilna, but he came back to to pass on uh, information and notes and to look for his family, came back to Warsaw, to occupy Warsaw. And then in a very, very um, long journey, he came to Israel in 1941 and um here he he continued writing in yiddish he published he published a book and then he wrote some articles sent to the Fowels to the yiddish uh, newspaper in uh, in new york and he made his living in he had a little store of um handbags for women but his real passion was of course yiddish literature and yiddish writing in 1945 after the war he went back to poland and he um, toured all the, um, all, the, all the towns and cities where Jewish, Jew, where Jewish communities uh, lived before the war. And he reported about them to the forwards and um, their articles were published in, in book afterwards. And then he came back and he had this initiative to start the Yiddish press. And uh, in 1948, uh, in the summer of 1948, after the, after, after the proclamation of the state and before the beginning of the mass immigration to Israel, he started a weekly in, in Yiddish. And this uh, started uh, the whole process of, um, of the Yiddish press in Israel. I would a- also add that before that, uh, during the pre state period, there was almost no Yiddish press. There were some attempts to start Yiddish newspapers. Uh, but they were not very successful. And after a short time, um, these um, newspapers shut down. The only one was uh, one, uh, um, uh, one uh, bi-weekly, naivelt uh, by uh, the left coalition at radical left movement that uh, was founded in 1934 and lasted until the mid fifties. But this was the only viable Jewish uh, newspaper tanin actually started the process of creating Yiddish press in Israel and he fought for it um, very very strongly and bravely and creatively
0: that's very interesting how did he come to be involved in the newspaper let's deny us
1: okay I want to say I want to say something in the background sure so um, before the um, which we haven't said until now and it's very important to understand that um, after the proclamation of the state there were um, very elaborate debates about um, the creation what what will be uh, it was clear that Hebrew is the language of the state and people are coming from all over the world and there has to be um, ways have to be found to teach them Hebrew and to inculcate the language to make it the language of the country. Uh, people are coming from different, uh, different places. And one and then there was another question that Aben Guryon, which became the prime minister after the Proclamation of the State, but before that he was already the leader of, Free State, of the Jewish community of pre-state Palestine. He was discussing it with scholars and scientists and intellectuals. What will be the Israeli culture? What does it mean, Israeli culture? People are coming with the culture of the Jews in Eastern Europe, the culture of the Jews in the countries of the Islam. What will be the Israeli culture? And the idea was, and this was a very strong ideological component of the entire thinking of the state, that the Israeli culture has to be something new. Yes. And, you know, I'm... I want to use the word, that something that will be invented, a new yes. Israeli culture, it, which means not only in a different language, but with a different contents. And Ben Gurion uh, supported for years this idea that um, the historians call uh, the historical leap. And he said it in his diary, and he said it after a meeting with a Yiddish poet, that he wants to go back to the times of the second temple when um, the Jews or the Israelites were settling in their own land. Because afterwards, when Jews went to the diaspora, their life was flawed. And we want to to jump over those years and actually to lacerate this period from uh, from the historical continuity. It's not part of our history. We want to push it out. Yes. And kind but what the scholars call the historical <laughs> leap. So if this is the attitude, Yiddish culture, Yiddish literature has to be removed from the Jewish history and from the culture. Yes. Now, 200,000 people come from the Yiddish-speaking world. They are all survivors in one way or the other. Either they survived the camps, Or they hid somewhere, or they managed to go um, to the east. But they are all survivors now. The culture is not good anymore. This is the notion. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, at the same time, and this where it becomes complicated, because at the same time, when Ben Gurion appoints Ben Zion Dinur, the professor Dinur, the the Hebrew University professor of history, Ben Zion Dinur, he appointed minister of uh, education and for that and at the same time they also create uh, a supreme cult a supreme um, council for cultural and affairs and at the first meeting Benzion only delivers a long speech and yes. he explains people have come here who are not part of the jewish culture they don't know they haven't heard about the gaon you know the gaon from Uh, From Vilna, they are not part of the emergence of Zionism, which means they are not Jews from Europe. They are not part of Hasidism against Eastern Europe. And they are also not part of the emergence of Zionism against Europe. So at the same time, when they say we want to create a new culture, he says our culture is the East European culture. Yeah. So how would we negotiate? Yeah. So this is something in the background. Mm Now, also, Janot, many of the laws are mandatory laws from the British Mandate before 1948. Now, the British Mandate had, has laws about censorship of newspapers and theater. If you want to start a newspaper, you need a license. Yes. And here, the authority all of a sudden has power. They can deny you a license. So you don't have to do anything. Just to decide whom you are giving a license and you are not giving a license, and this is where Tanim started his. This is what started his big fight for he,
0: you. You made reference to Benzion Dinur, um, and this is this question is actually jumping ahead to your chap, fourth chapter chapter four. But uh, in light of you alluding to Benzion Dinur and his perspective. How were Benzion Dinur's and David Ben-Gurion's perspectives on the Yiddish language similar or different from one another?
1: They were not different at all. Uh, Ben-Zio, ben, um, Ben-Zion Dinur uh, agreed with Ben-Gurion on everything. That's why Ben-Gurion uh, appointed him. They worked <laughs> together. They just presented it in different ways and uh, Ben-Zion Dinu had a more, I would say intellectual, cultural, broad view, while while Ben-Gurion had political interests, and I'm happy to talk about it uh, a little bit later when we get to it, but there were no no differences between them because, um, and we can talk about it later, Uh, At a certain point, Ben-Gurion withdrew from his opposition to Yiddish. Not not after a short time, Ben-Gurion withdrew from his opposition to Yiddish.
0: Understood. Going back to Mordechai Tsanin, how did he become involved with the Netzenayas newspaper project?
1: Yes, okay. So he actually started with a a weekly. And a weekly could get get, uh, a permit easily. Plus, I mean, he needed money, et cetera, and he didn't know, and there was no readership when he started in July, 1948. There was, I mean, there, was, there were not so many East European uh, immigrants. They started coming a little bit later. So I started with a weekly, with an illustrated weekly, which was um, bilingual Hebrew, and it was Illustrator Borchenglat and Shavuon Metsuyar. Um, the same, both mean Illustrator, Illustrated Weekly. And uh it was a lot of photographs and not so much text. But what is interesting is that he had an editorial policy, he had a vision, because um he he knew or he intuitively what would interest his readers a lot about the Israeli military, a lot, many you know, covers of the of the um it, it there were like booklets. I mean, this uh, it was a magazine, so many covers were these photographs of soldiers, female, uh, female, uh, female soldiers. Um, the perspective of a new immigrant, an East European Yiddish speaker, new immigrant who is a soldier, a new immigrant soldier on the watch. What does he think? Some uh, uh, some drawings and photographs he thinks that now he's strong, he's part of the Jewish army. He's not like he was before. Yes. And lots of, of uh, the material was very well adapted to what he understood is the perspective and the interests of, the, of his readers. Yes. And after, after, I would say, after a few months, we see on the back of Illustrierte Wochenblatt*. In small letters, the editor of this, of, of illustrator Vochenblatt has office hours on Tuesday between two and four in the afternoon, which was, uh, I would say, normal practice in, in, uh, in Yiddish newspapers. You have a problem with the authorities. you come to the editor of the of the English newspaper. he will find a way to help you or to give you an advice yeah and then, after sixty weeks, he decided to turn his weekly into a daily a newspaper a regular newspaper that uh, would come out uh, every day. however, the regulations of uh, granting um, Permits to, to to newspapers was that I mean Hebrew every Hebrew newspapers could get easily uh, a permit as long as they were appropriate. Non Hebrew could come out only uh, max max three times a week. So Tzani started with a once a week, and then he moved to twice a week, and then he moved to three times a week. And then he wanted to become, to, become, uh, to become a daily, which he was of course denied a uh, license. And this is when he starts his big, big, big war against the authorities. Now he found a trick and it turns out that he wasn't the only one who was using it. He founded another newspaper with a license to come out three times a week under a different name. And you know, and he alternated them. Let's deny us. Let's deny us means the latest news. And I'll say if you, I'll say something about about the name. Yes. Um, so, one on, on Sunday, uh, Tuesday, and Friday, Let's deny us, and the other newspaper on Monday, fr- um, Wednesday, and Thursday, telling the readers that we are the same newspaper, and also. He, he would publish chapters of the novel. So chapter one was in Let's denise and chapter two was in the other newspapers and, and chapter three again in Let's denise So people, it was clear that it is the same and authorities knew about it and didn't do anything. Now, this is one thing, but this is not, of course, not enough. Zanin had the ta- a talent to create a very interesting and unique newspaper he had, um, he had uh, a, news, uh, a news page which brought the news in Yiddish to people who don't know Hebrew. Yeah. But he understood that it is not enough. Mm-hmm. Because new immigrants, and especially people who came after the Holocaust, and also scholars uh, uh, have noticed that they very fast tried to integrate and to become are part of the Israeli society. I mean, uh, uh, in those days people didn't know anything about PTSD and they didn't understand that these people were post-traumatic. But one of the reactions was an attempt to to integrate in the new society as quickly as possible. And people learned Hebrew. So it's not enough to translate the news from Hebrew into, into Yiddish. You have to aim at their interests. Yeah. And Sanin understood what their interest is. Mm-hmm. So he wrote about the difficulties of other of, uh, new immigrants. He wrote about their perspectives. He also was the first Israeli newspaper who commemorated the Holocaust. Really, In April, which was the day of the um of the, uh, also Ghetto Uprising, he published a whole page about the uprising. Other newspapers didn't do it then. Wow. So, and also uh, he criticized very, very sharply the government, especially Ben Gurion. He was known as a very strong Ben Gurion's opponent. Mm-hmm. And something else, Let's tenize, had a top class yiddish literary supplement which was a very important component in any yiddish newspaper and sani knew it and he brought yiddish literature classic yiddish literature new yiddish literature information about israeli culture information about yiddish culture and this was very important to the readers or even when they were able to read hebrew so a Hebrew newspaper and knowing Hebrew could not replace Letztenayas, and Letztenayas became a very powerful newspaper. Now, yes. in, order, in order to, to, to compete with Letztenayas and to reach out to, this, to, 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 the, to the Yiddish readers, the political party started publishing Yiddish newspapers. And Mapai, the, the Labour Party, which was called Mapai, Mifleget polarity Israelis, acronym of the Party of the Workers of the Land of Israel, published their own Yiddish newspaper, which was fiasco. Wow. They, not, they had no way of competing with him, and they wanted to shut him up, but <laughs> in a sophisticated way. So they, they ended up in 1960 purchasing Let's nice from Tzani. And Let's Denies became a newspaper, a daily published by the hegemonic party in Mapai, and it came out until now, two thousand and six. But in 19, in the nineties, it was sold to a private. But this is a this is this is a different um, this is different time and different uh, different cultural setting.
0: Interesting. This is this is absolutely fascinating. Wow.
1: This was really a a first class newspaper of the highest level possible. And Samin was very much respected and you can see him. And he was a member of the, of the council of the, of the journalist of the Israeli journal, of the Hebrew journalist. Uh, he, he had the status of a very respected journalist, Israeli journalist and editor. And, and which I didn't say before, when Mapai, the Labour Party purchased Lester Nais, he remained the editor <laughs> and they didn't put any censorship on him really? and i mean he knew how to how to adjust himself and he remained in his job until the 1970s when he was already in his 70s and he had as an additional um, newspaper of his own which was called Zanin's illustrator the illustrator the illustrated world of Zanin, because sunny for himself became a brand
0: why did the newspaper let's deny close in two thousand and six?
1: It actually closed in the nineties it was the um it belonged to the labor party but uh, the publisher was kind of company that belonged to the labor party and they they had it turns out that over the year they purchased more uh, additional newspapers in different languages uh and um in the 90s, they sold all the newspapers, the foreign language newspapers, including Yiddish, as a package to a private uh, entrepreneur, and uh, it was um, it, it was um, again a fiasco because people were not reading. One of the problems is not only the readership; you need writers, you need an interesting, you need interesting material. Right now, you know the readership. You know, people, biology does what it does and the number of readers decline and the in, the, and the newspaper is less interesting also. So um, he, they started losing money and he sold it to somebody else who actually wanted to support the edition. But in the end, they had to close it. That wow. nobody, um, nobody read it in the end. I mean, People would buy it in order to support it, but there was not really, re- real interesting. Time change is not the same thing.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. In chapter three of your book, you tell the story of the Gold Faden Theater's petition to the High Court of Justice against Israel's government. Why was the staging of such plays as Herschel Ostropolier and Ditzvei Kuni Lemel, threatening to Israel's government? And can you tell the story of this yeah, case?
1: Okay, so, um, okay, you have to put it in context. So the same problem that the newspapers had was the same about the theater. The interest of the government was to inculcate the Hebrew language. So one of the way, one of the ways was uh, the, the major effort was uh, put in teaching Hebrew and also they um, the, the government declared uh, a year of they called it the year of Hebrew under the slogan uh, it's a pan in Hebrew and it, it, it doesn't sound so so good in English but I have to try amil um, mad um the slogan it means uh, the entire uh, nation will learn and the entire nation will teach the meaning was that um, people would, uh, people who know Hebrew will volunteer to teach uh, the new immigrants. It was, uh, it was uh, a nationwide effort to teach Hebrew and uh, people volunteered to teach Hebrew. And uh, even um, the late Israeli um, sociologist, Baruch Kimmerlin called these volunteers the soldiers of the hegemony, like an army, like the hegemony had an army of Hebrew teachers to teach people Hebrew. And so this was the major effort. But alongside this effort, there was another effort to limit the use of non-Hebrew languages. So one way was um, to limit the newspapers. And with the newspapers, there was another thing because at the same time, uh, during the 50s, there was uh, an acute shortage of uh, print paper. So the priority was to print Hebrew books and Hebrew newspaper. And they actually denied uh, print paper from uh, the, from the English newspaper. Tani had to fight over over it. uh, And he really fought very strongly. And until his last day, he didn't forget it, how he fought for the papers. Now, the theater had the same thing. So, in order to uh, in order to, to perform a non Hebrew, not a Yiddish, a non Hebrew uh, um, performance of any kind, uh, people needed um, a permit. And in many and um, the policy was to not to allow non Hebrew uh, performances, mm-hmm. and to allow only um, you know um, guest artists to perform in, in non Hebrew. A Non-Hebrew relates to all languages, except for English and Arabic, which were um, during the, uh, during um, mandatory Palestine, there were the official languages of uh, the land of, of the British mandate. Afterwards, there was no official language until until um, the nation law. Um, so all this time, there was no official language, but there was, I mean, there was, the custom was that these, these are the three languages, Hebrew, English, and, uh, and Arabic. So um, people were denied, I mean, guests were allowed to perform for six weeks, guest artists, and also local were allowed to perform in the camps of, in the transit camps of the new immigrants for a limited, uh, for a limited time. But to perform um, really um, a show in in, in Yiddish, uh, it was, um, it it was very difficult. So, These three people, they were new immigrants from Poland. They were actors with a career. One of them, Wolfowicz, uh, had a career in Poland uh, in very, um, very respected theaters. The other two also had a career and they simply, they needed to make a living. I mean, very, very simple. And they asked to they asked uh, for a permit, and they were denied a permit, but you know people need to make a living, so they decided to to take the risk and to perform without um, without uh, a permit and the result was that sometimes uh sometimes they would get a ticket, sometimes they didn't get a ticket, and also the law was That when a policeman comes into a theater hall and the show is already running, he's not allowed to stop it. So it was known among the Yiddish theater goers that if the ads in the newspaper or on the street says that the show starts at at 8.30, it means that it starts at 8. Now the policeman shows up at 8.30, the show is already running, so he can't stop it, he gives them a ticket. It was a very, it was a, it was a small, insignificant amount of money that could be replaced with one day arrest at the police station. But, you know, you can't live like this, especially if you're an artist, you want to perform. And they decided to go and, uh, to, and to, to appeal to, to the Supreme Court of Justice, to the Supreme Court in its capacity at the High, High Court of Justice. Uh, they had a lawyer whose name was Ruben Nochimovsky, who was also a new immigrant. And um, I assumed that he did it for Bono because I don't think they had money to pay him. And um, it was a big deal because it came to the meeting of the cabinet. And uh, at this meeting, and actually I assumed they did it because they had no choice. They simply had no choice. It's not a way of uh, it's not a way of, 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 of living. When if you're an artist, that every time you try to you try to um, to perform, they I mean you are uh, subjected to a visit of policemen and to uh, and to, to get tickets before they I mean they appealed and they actually wrote in their in their appeal something which is very touching. They say we are. We are actors, Jews from the diaspora. We came here. We wanted to perform in Yiddish, and you don't let us. And there was a, a cabinet meeting, and the attorney general said at that cabinet meeting that I have no way to defend it. I have no way to defend the government to defend the state. And Ben Gurion said the unforgettable words. And he said this. He said, we are not allowed to deny a little joy from 200,000 survivors. Wow. And then he said something else. And then he said in in his diary, he said, not the the mythic, he said, before the state, in pre-state times, I was very zealous. I thought that we have to persecute Yiddish. But he said, "I changed my attitude. this is his own words. I changed my attitude to Yiddish, and I'm sorry my children don't understand Yiddish. So, so um, and this was the end of restric- restricting the Yiddish uh, the Yiddish theater. That's it. The next day, I mean, uh, the government was um, this was I mean, they I mean they uh, dismissed the appeal." But the court uh, ruled that the government has to pay, I mean, um, the legal fees. But um, the next day, there was no, no, no restricting of English theater. And I can tell you that I went through the files of the censorship. I, well, I mean, dozens and dozens of applications and all kinds of nasty comments by the people of the censorship. And then there is a stamp approved. It said a stupid show, who needs it approved? So, um, and I want to add something that this was not the only appeal to the uh, Supreme Court uh, for restricting Yiddish. There was another one a year later by an editor of, um, someone who was an owner and editor of um, a row of Yiddish of newspapers in many languages and he managed to publish only one in Yiddish. Uh, however, and he got, I don't, I don't understand the how, he got a permit to publish daily, but he couldn't, he published only a few, a few issues. And the law says that if, you, if a person has a uh, permit to publish daily and he doesn't, he doesn't publish at least, uh, uh, I think 12 or 15 days in a row, um, the permit will be taken away. And he, of course, didn't publish even 15 issues in, during a year. And um, the permit was taken away from him. And he appealed to the Supreme Court in its capacity as the high court of justice saying that other newspapers in Hebrew also are in the same situation and nobody cares. So it's actually um, the selective um, uh, enforcement, right? Which is illegal. And um, the court didn't rule in his favor. Wow. So.
0: That's fascinating. W- why did the gold f- Goldfaden Theater ultimately fail?
1: So uh, one of my arguments is that, I mean, uh, one of the argue- my argument is that eventually um, the restrictions of Yiddish and the, rest- uh, the governmental restrictions of Yiddish uh, didn't play uh, a major role in the fate of Yiddish. Um, it galvanized the the activists to be more active and more creative. And uh, actually they, they, they were like kind of subversive counterculture, but it galvanized them to be more creative and more, um, and more productive. What, um, The two other factors that were at play here are the uh, public opinion about Yiddish, which I hope we'll talk about it later. And, you know, there is a natural dynamic of immigrant societies. Now, who was the Yiddish? What was the Goldfaden uh, uh, Theater? They wanted to create uh, a repertory theater. Most of the Yiddish uh, most of the Yiddish performances were kind of what they called then review theater. You know, some dancing, uh, uh, so- songs, dancing, light entertainment. Uh, the Goldfaden wanted to be uh, a repertoire, repertory theater. Now, there was always historically, there was in Yiddish, Yiddish theater, is historically characterized by a tension between the art theater, the repertory theater. And the light entertainment, which naturally the light entertainment attract the broader, um, broader um, uh, uh, audience, while you know the high quality a smaller audience. This is uh, this is a you know um, this is a common denominator for many arts. They aimed at a higher level, but they didn't have um, they, they couldn't do it. Because they didn't have money, so um, they couldn't uh, they couldn't afford a good a good hall, a good place to perform. They couldn't perform. They couldn't afford good. Uh, they couldn't for- perform the costumes. They couldn't perform. They couldn't afford uh, finding uh, a good director. So they chose from the classical uh, repertoire what they remembered by heart and the staging that they remembered from the past. And they said, so people could come to the theater, close their eyes and imagine that they are back, you know, in Warsaw or in Odessa or wherever they are. But people were in Israel. And there is another thing. They they couldn't find, uh, they couldn't pay for a good place. So they were performing in Jaffa in um, a neighborhood of new immigrants. People couldn't come there because, you know, uh, those, at that time people didn't have their own cars. Uh, public transportation was very difficult. So it was, um, it was very difficult to get there. And the audience, the local audience was not the audience that was interested in it. So once they, I mean, ironically, once they won the case in court and they didn't have to fight for it anymore, they actually, uh, the, the theater dissolved. Uh, ironically, fighting the authorities, and being able to perform in Yiddish became their goal. And when this was lost, uh, they, um, they they dissolved. And there is another thing. I read um, a transcript of um, a radio interview with one of the of the actors, where he said um, that um, uh, we performed somewhere in Tel Aviv and the, the hall was packed. And then I found, I'm sorry, I found the, um, their reports of the box office—they—they they didn't sell tickets. Also, we need to remember that at this years, Israel was under an austerity regime. People didn't have money, so if you want to go to the theater, you have to choose very carefully what you what you what you are going to spend your money on. And this kind of shows wasn't high priority. And frustratingly enough, people who wanted to hear some Yiddish. You know, prefer to go and to hear some songs or some some very light entertainment, or to see a visitor who came from the United States, from Argentina, uh, who whom they remembered from their appearances in Eastern Europe.
0: Yes. Thank you for for providing that detail. In chapter four, you introduce us to Avraham Sutzkever. Who was he? And why is he so important to the history of Yiddish in Israel?
1: Well, uh, uh, Avraham Sutzkever in Yiddish, Mm -hmm. Avraham in Hebrew, yeah, he in Yiddish, Avraham Sutzkever. He is, I would say, um, one of the most important Jewish writers of the 20th century. Yeah. His poetry is extremely outstanding, extremely sophisticated. His Yiddish is, you know, um, Benjamin who was um, a Yale professor of uh, comparative literature, but before that, he was uh, a graduate of a Yiddish high school in Vilna. And then he came to Israel and was, um, uh, for a while he was a Yiddish poet and at a certain point he started and then he became a Hebrew poet and he was also a professor at Tel Aviv University and was University of Jerusalem. He wrote in the introduction to the anthology of Sutzkever's poems which came out first in English and then in a broader edition in Hebrew, he wrote only people and he used uh, words in Hebrew that also very difficult to translate in only people who can understand Sutzkevel's Yiddish with its, he said its diamonds, its treasures, and its secrets. He wrote it in Hebrew in English, he didn't write it like this. Only these people can appreciate this, his literature. He's really one of the greatest writers of the Jewish people in the 20th century. Sadly enough, he didn't get recognition in Israel. I mean, the, the broad audience until he was very, very old. So Sutzkevel was an important poet already before he came to Israel. He was in, he was, um, he was born in Smogond, and then he moved, they moved to Vilna and he already wrote very important poetry in Vilna before the war. He was in the ghetto, he managed to run away. And while he was hiding, he wrote already uh, poems that were extremely appreciated. He was uh, then he joined the partisans he and his wife, and um, his poetry um, his poetry uh, reached um, Moscow and people smuggled it, and he was so appreciated that the Soviets sent a helicopter to rescue him and his wife from the woods. Now, and he was very famous already and very appreciated. And also he was um, a witness in the Milenberg, um trials. Now, after the war, he moved, he, he was wandering through Europe and he was in, in Paris and he tried to get a visa to, to the United States, but he was really pondering, where, where should he go? And, um, He decided eventually that he wants to go to Israel. Although he he asked uh, friends to help him get a visa to the United States. But he wrote, and I have many reasons to believe him, that he chose, he preferred to go to Israel. He had a brother in Israel. And uh, he also wrote that his mother told him to go to Israel before she was killed, he told him to go to Israel. And I don't underestimate, after such a catastrophe, I don't underestimate these memories and these emotional considerations. Plus, in America, there were already, there was already a number of significant Yiddish writers and not so many, not so many opportunities in, to work in newspapers. And uh, Israel was a better option. And I think he did it. Uh, I think he really preferred Israel for all these uh, uh, considerations. But this is not enough because it was 1947 and it was the British mandate. And uh, people needed a certificate to come to Israel. And he couldn't get a certificate on his own. He had to be brought to Israel. And um the histadote, which is uh, the Histadrot is actually a kind of uh how will I put it in a in in, in a short explanation? It is uh, an organ, it's a trade union, but more of kind of, of a trade union or uh, a worker organization, but it it was it acted as an executive arm of the government, it was part of the government. So the uh, De Istad decided to bring him and to create for him this uh this quarterly, which he called the Golden Kate, after the name of uh, of a play by Yudlamit Peretz who was uh, one of the greatest Yiddish writers ever in Poland. Why did the Istadrut did it? My understanding is. Ben Gurion, you know, people try to say he was he, people people like to say he was he was persecuting. Yiddish, he was, I think he was much more sophisticated and he had a much broader view. Ben-Gurion wanted to make the state of Israel the center of the Jewish people, not only the political center, but also the cultural center. And he wanted to have in the state of Israel to come, right? Representations of all parts of the Jewish culture. And Yiddish was one of them. Now to create a high, high quality, super high quality literary, Journal does not put any threat on the inculcation of Hebrew because it's not for the, for, the, for the public. It's for a small group, for a small group of intellectuals. So it will make Israel the center of uh, one aspect of the Jewish culture, but high quality, with one of the most important personalities. But Tzutzke there was something more. He wasn't just an intellectual. He wasn't just a writer. He was also a hero. He fought with a gun. He was a partisan, and this, coin, this, and this coincided with the favorite image of the Israeli, of the Jew, not as as afraid of the non-Jews, as as you know as as abused by them, as persecuted by a strong Jew that has um, the power. Um, and can, and can fight back, and Sutzkever and the, the Israeli Hebrew press described him as uh, uh, Sozkebel with a gun in one hand and the manuscript of Golki, the Russian uh, writer in his pocket. Also they called him it's, an, it's a Aramaic expression, a sword in the pen. he was both, and he was the perfect candidate. And the Stadu created this platform from him for him and uh, funded it until until the late
0: 90s. Later on in chapter four, you describe the establishment of a chair in Yiddish at Hebrew University, but you also allude to the attempt to found a Yiddish chair at Hebrew University during the mandate period. Mm -hmm. Why was the attempt successful in 1951 to create a chair of Yiddish at Hebrew University, whereas the attempt in 1927 was not?
1: Well, I mean, this is a different setting. This is pre-state and this is the state of Israel with different interests. Now, 1927, the Hebrew University was founded in 25, two years after. And um, there was a real opposition to Yiddish in pre-state. And there was no, um, as I said before, there were no Yiddish newspapers and no periodicals and no publications in Yiddish and it was very easy um to protest against against Yiddish and to be and, and and to be against Yiddish. and it was um so it was very easy, easy to reject it at that time um, however later it was um the the donors were the owner was um um the um labor zionist alliance which was for the Zionist organization, there was already a Jewish state. There were different interests, and like the Golden Gate, it was another small and limited manifestation of very high Jewish culture. And by the way, the idea at that time was to create also a chair in Judeo-Spanish, in in, in uh, uh, Jewish Spanish, which uh, didn't uh, didn't materialize. But uh, so it, it was. It was. It wasn't difficult, and there was no objection. Uh, there was deliberation: who will be the, the person who will be hired for the chair? But the principle was accepted immediately, and it was. It coincides with the Golden Gate, and there was a connection between the Golden Gate and the chair, the Yiddish chair.
0: What was the relationship between Avraham Sutzkever and the Young Israel group? Okay. Why was he not a member of the? group, despite being one of the founders of this group?
1: Okay. So uh, the group um, Young Israel, as they say, Young Israel, they were a group of young, young uh, writers who came to Israel as young people. They mm-hmm. didn't have a writing career before coming to Israel. And also and they were, um, they started writing about, about life in Israel in their, in their unique way. And in a way, Sutzkevel who wanted to create a Yiddish literary uh, uh, environment in Israel? And the idea was to connect these people and to create, uh, to create uh, uh, a kind of, of literary group so they will support each other. One of this group who is still alive, um, Rivka Bassman, uh, said to me, uh, For us, she used the word, it was a psychological workshop. He supported us, he understood us. They were all Holocaust survivors, except for one. But he also was from Eastern Europe, and he came to Israel through Australia. Um, they were all young Holocaust survivors, and um, they needed this support in order to write. Now Sutzkever was not one of them. He was older. He had a career. He was their mentor. He published their poetry in his uh, in in his uh, journal. He he. He read, he critiqued the work, but he wasn't one of the group. He was not in the same stage of the career and he was older. He didn't have, they were not in the same status. There was young people with a mentor.
0: Elsewhere in chapter five, you tell the story of other, you, you allude to other members of Yung Israel: Mendel Mann, Avraham Rintzler, Avraham Karpinovich, Zvi oh, yeah. Eisenman, Yossi Birstein, Moishe Jungmann. Who were they? Why were their writings meaningful and important?
1: There were young people who wanted to be writers in Yiddish, and many of them were. I mean, they didn't... Some of them... Yossi Bilstein became a major Israeli writer. Um, They wrote in Yiddish because this is what they could do. They were writers. Um, They represent a different aspect of Israeli literature. It's not the difference is not only in the language, but in the way they understood life in Israel. As I, as I explained at the beginning, ben Guyon talked about uh, the historical leap. They, and this was actually the uh, Zionist master narrative in Hebrew literature. Uh, um, Hebrew writers, expressed the same idea that what happened in the past happened, we have to move on and to forget about it. They said, no, the redemption can be only through the connection. There should be a bridge between the life in the diaspora to the life here. And only if we connect the two, uh, the two uh, places of, of life to one continuity, then a, a person can get his redemption. And all of the stories that were about the life in Israel had a connection to the previous life. And the Israeli readership didn't want to, to read it. These people, they had all kinds of supporters in, um, mainly in, in America and in Latin, in the United States and in Latin America that funded Hebrew translations and publisher didn't want to publish it because it's not interesting to the Hebrew readership. The Hebrew readership wants to see an Israeli who has nothing to do with diasporic past. We don't accept the idea or the, um, the concept that is life in Israel are a continuation and an evolution of the life in the diaspora. And even I found a letter that someone write to Eisenman, your prose is like poetry. So wonderful and so beautiful. Not someone, an editor-in-chief of a big a publishing house in Tel Aviv. So beautiful and so colorful. But the spirit of Poland characterizes it. And you rejected it because we don't want the spirit of Poland. We don't want the spirit of Israel. We want the Hebrew spirit. Hebrew is not only a language. It's also a spirit and ideology.
0: Why did Israeli-Hebrew critics ignore young Israel.
1: They didn't appreciate it. They didn't think it's interesting. The, the, the Israeli public saw Yiddish, which because of this idea of the historical leap, because of the, of the desire to lacerate the past of, from the historical continuity, because of the idea the Jews in the diaspora are weak, and we in Israel are strong. And, you know, the proof is that we fight, fight against our enemies and they let themselves get killed, right? So, I said it represents something that we are not interested in. I have to say that it changed. After the, after the, after the Eichmann trial in the 60s, it changed a little. And it's, now it's entirely different. People see it in an entirely different way. But in the 50s, this is how people saw it. There was even a term, it's diasporic, It's something bad. It is diasporic, it's not good.
0: Yes, understood. You
1: know, people would say to the parents, uh, they would say, this is not how, we sh- how, how I was brought up. This is not the way to behave. And children would say, what do you know? You are from the diaspora, I don't know. You're not, you're not a real Israeli. It was very strong. Now, Yiddish is not only a language, it's a whole culture, and the image is inseparable. You can't separate between the image of Yiddish and life in the diaspora, Yiddish is the embodiment of the diaspora. Yeah,
0: I'm curious to ask you about the play by Yitzhak Munger, *Di Megile Leader*.
1: Okay, *Di Megile Leader*. It's not a play; it's a circle, or it's a cycle of it's a cycle of of poems that was reworked into a play in Israel. Uh, Etik Mandel was a very, very famous, uh, an important, and super important uh, Yiddish poet. His, um, he, his his poems are more folky, and uh, many of them has many of them have music, and they are songs. Some of them are very popular, and uh, he was known even among the um, even among Israelis, and um, in the 1960s, and he wrote this, this, uh, this is a cycle of poems that describes the book of Esther, you know, the story of Puri, yes. as if the heroes are Jews from the shtetl, and most of them are as tailors and assistant to tailors. So he puts a traditional story into the framework, into the setting of the shtetl, and um. To this, uh, the composer Dubi Zelzer wrote beautiful music and they hired a very good director, Shmuel Bunim, and did this show. Uh, it was a Yiddish play. So when they, uh, when, when they performed it, now I'm um, worried about the two people who, who were behind it. It was, it was performed in the Hamam, which was uh, an Israeli theater located in an old Turkish. Bathhouse with the domes, very oriental. And the two owners were two people who were very strong in Israeli culture and they had the image of the quintessential Israeli born. But both of them were not Israeli born. Dan ben Benamotz was born in Poland uh, with the original name Moishe Tilimzoger. And Chaim Hefer it was, uh, they were both journalists and poets and writers. Chaim Hefer was a poet, Dan Benamotz was a writer. Chaim Hefer was also born in Poland. Uh, and his name was Chaim Feiner. They both knew Yiddish. Chaim, Chaim Hefer even studied at the Hebrew chair, at the Yiddish chair at the Hebrew University, and Dan ben came, um, he was, he was uh, 14 years old, he knew Yiddish. And they were they were the quintessential sabra. And they had this Haman theater, and the tessert, which was very successful and attracted, you know, the highest uh, uh, officials and... Uh, uh, officers in the army and the very, very Israeli people. And um, at a certain point, it started to, de- to deteriorate and they looked for something new. And they came up with the idea, they knew Mangel, they knew his work, and they came up with this idea to do this something that uh, unusual, I don't know, um, diasporic play, play in a very Israeli set, set, setting. But it, they started, it was a fiasco, huge fiasco. But after a few weeks, there was... Um, Uh, A huge article by Michael Ohad was uh, the most influential critic who presented it as uh, an extraordinary uh, artistic uh, success and uh, wrote that everyone has to go and see it. And, you know, it was a game changer and it became a hit. It was in 1965. It became a hit. And it was also after the Eichmann trial, which changed the attitude to the diaspora and to... Yiddish was Yiddish, the attitude to Yiddish and the attitude to to the diaspora are the two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing. Uh, But so this is one factor because it wasn't the 50, it was 65. But this this, uh, uh, public view designs, public opinion designs, public uh, uh, changed the attitude to it and it became a huge success and it ran for 200 times, and it was a huge success. However, I'm not sure that people uh, perceived it as a Yiddish play. They perceived it mainly as an extraordinary theatrical performance, because it didn't change the attitude, uh, the attitude uh, to Yiddish. And um, right after that, 1967, uh, the Six-Day War, and all of a sudden, Israel got these territories, and all of a sudden, uh, all the all, everyone was preoccupied with the land of Israel, and uh, the Israeli culture shifted from. You know, there was uh, a moment of of, of um, the flourishing of of cultural products that are connected to the diaspora. There was this, there was another, there was uh, another show, very successful. There was a pious man where. Young people with blue jeans and guitars were singing Hasidic songs. Uh, But this was that. And then there was a shift to Eretz Israel to the land of Israel. And when it was performed again in the 80s, it was not a success. And then it it went to the realm of Finnish
0: theater. Why was the choice of the Hammam theater in Jaffa significant as the setting?
1: Because this was a a quintessential Israeli thing. People... People wouldn't go to a theater, but a theater to—I mean—to to just, just a whole theater, a theater house. But the hammam was very prestigious. It was a new thing. It was very oriental, and some of the previous performances dealt with relations between uh, Jews and Arabs and Israeli performances, uh, and all I mean, you know—very influential people uh, were going there. Uh, high officials in the government and even the prime minister and ministers and uh, journalists and high-ranked officers. So uh, once it was there and Mikhail Ohad, this very, very influential critic, uh, um, raved it so in, in, in the highest way possible, people started flocking.
0: In chapter seven of your book, when you discussed the subsequent history of Yiddish in Israel, what role did the founding of Beit Livak and Beit Shalom Aleichem play in the subsequent history of Yiddish in Israel?
1: Okay, so these are different houses. Beit Leivik uh, was created as the house of the Yiddish, um, the Association of Yiddish Journalists. And when it was created then, it was, um, it was kind of, uh, it was directed inward to the Yiddish journalists, not to the general public. The general public had no, no interest there. Beit Shalom Aleichem was created for the general public to um, to instill the writing of Shol Aleichem. And the man who was um, was very active was Yudalet Berkovich, who was his son in law, and he also translated all his writings in, uh, into Hebrew and afterwards there were other editions, better translations, but he was the first one. And when I was a child, we learned in school with his translation. And this was for the general public. And originally uh, Yudaleh Dokvich was not interested that it would have the signature of Yiddish. However, uh, and Beit Sholmelechim was uh, not active until uh, the end of the 20th century. Very, uh, there were articles about them in the Israeli press and they called them um, uh, um, fancy and empty. Uh, Bet as I said, it was um, the, um, the, uh, for the association and the club of the Yiddish writers. Biology did its job and uh, you know, the number uh, uh, grew smaller and smaller and uh in the na- late in the end right around the end of the 19th of the 20th century uh both houses were uh gotten new administration um, both directors are people from uh who were born and brought up in Argentina in yiddish bet levik uh, Daniel galay and Bet Sholmelechem professor abram noverstern so um Beit is a center for Yiddish activity of all kinds of, and Beit Chol is, is really, an, is more academic. It has uh, a, a very good number of uh, Yiddish classes. And nowadays it's very successful. He has a few hundred students. They have regular uh, lectures they support publishing books and they have a very, very um, wide activity. But Levick also has a wide activity, but of a different sort. They also have some classes, but they, they, uh, they do more lectures and uh, some, some social activities, but they are both now throughout the general Israeli society. You can't, say, you can't say that they're fancy and empty because they're not empty at all. And also it shows you that now I'm talking nowadays, today, yesterday, tomorrow, people are coming and going. There are um, the vibrant centers of Yiddish, both of them.
0: What role did the founding of Israeli Yiddish presses, such as Israel Buch Menorah and Yehuda Leib Peretz Fairlog play in the later history of Yiddish in Israel?
1: Um, well, um, it's Hak Leib uh, uh, Peretz. Um, so they they enabled. They were in the 60s. They were the center of publishing of Yiddish publishing in the world. Not only Yiddish writing was published then, but also Yiddish writing in America and in uh, and in Latin America. This was the center of the Yiddish publishing in the world. Um, I'm not sure that the books were sold in these big numbers, but this was the center. Um, I don't think they played a significant role, uh, role in Israel, they played a significant role in Yiddish publishing in the world. All this Peretz was uh, the last one to, to shut down at the 21st century. But there was Yiddish book, especially Yiddish book and menorah, and they were active in, in, the, in the 20th century. But again, not only for, they also published translation into Hebrew, of these Yiddish writers that the Hebrew presses refused to, uh, to publish. And again, the funding came from rich Jews who wanted to support Yiddish in the United States, in Miami, uh, also in Mexico. I mean, always on every book, uh, you have the, the opening page uh, who, who funded, uh, they thank the founder of the, uh, some, and the same names are, you see it again and again, the same names. I mean it wasn't a business. Let's was a business at the time. Let's was a business, but then it declined. But this wasn't a business. It was a business, but not a good one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you comment on the role of the new Yiddish journals Beizi and Fulk in Medina?
1: Yes. Okay. So in the 1970s, there was a wave of immigration from um, the Soviet Union. Now, as opposed to the wave of em- of immigrants of the 90s, this was the Yiddish. Um, wave of immigrants. These people came from um, what is now Lithuania, especially Lithuania and a little bit in the Ukraine. And this what used to be the pale of settlement during the, uh, during the Tsarist uh, Russia, during the Russian empire. These were Yiddish speaking people and um, they couldn't publish or write in Yiddish with the Soviet Union. They were looking for opportunities to publish. In the 90s, the Jews who came from Russia, they came from Moscow, from the big cities, they didn't know Yiddish. They had no, they knew that there is such a thing, and the grandparents spoke Yiddish, but they don't know Yiddish, these people. The people who came in the 70s were Yiddish speakers. So it was like, you know, like, like, like fresh blood to the blood circle of the. And yes, they created their own um, their own um, publications. And there was a thirst for publishing. They needed more and more. So Bayzich, it's uh, in our, in our uh, uh, it's, that belongs to us. So within us, Bayzich is within us, uh, was a literary, very successful. And it was actually a venue for these people to publish. They waited for decades to publish the writings in Yiddish. And all of a sudden they had it. Uh, um, Falcon Medina was a kind of, of 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 information. It was not that important, but Baisich was very important. And also, there was another another thing they couldn't uh, publish in the Golden Academy because Sotskevul was extremely rigorous, and you had to meet very high standards that not everyone met. And not all the time, even people who met the standards, not everything they wrote met his standards. So you needed more, uh, more venues for publishing. And this was really a good thing. They also published their own Yerushalayim al-Manach published by a poet, Yosef Kerler. So um, this was actually the whole renewal of Fiddish in the 70s, the main contribution was, was by Zich. and the the opportunity for these writers to publish more and more. But again, it remained within the realm of Yiddish Yiddish writers, and um, the interest was shrinking.
0: What impact did the 1969 wave of Aliyah from the Soviet Union have on Yiddish and Israel?
1: Okay, that's what I that's what I said. I mean, this was the Yiddish speaking 69, 6970. Yeah. This was the Yiddish speaking earlier. So, first of all, you could read, you could again hear Yiddish on the street. But I mean, there was an inter a, re, a new a renewed renewed interest in a little bit in the Yiddish press because they didn't know Hebrew and Yiddish was a way to read. And Tanin was still the editor of Let's The at that time. And then the uh, the creation of their um the um uh the attempts to to, to create new Yiddish opportunities. Uh, So um, these journals, also there were some very important writers. Um, There were um, uh, awards that were created for Yiddish writers. And actually they brought, um, they expanded the roles of Yiddish writers, but, what is interesting, they remained within the realms of those who came from Russia. One of the problems of the day, um, that they uh, 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 indicated was about Bayzich. Bayzich, it's not only within ourselves, it is writers, but it is writers from the Soviet Union. They were, so they couldn't, they, they remained among themselves. I mean, those, some of them managed to publish in the Golden Decade, of course, but they still, it was the environment of Yiddish writers who are uh, uh, who came from the Soviet Union. So, um, but there's no doubt that they expanded um, the interest in Yiddish, they expanded the number of Yiddish writers, they expanded the number of Yiddish speakers, but uh, they remained among themselves, they, they didn't integrate with the great with the with the with the general Yiddish arena in
0: Israel. Can you comment on the World Congress of Yiddish, which was yes. held this in was August 1976?
1: Yeah, this was another attempt uh, in in 76 to use this uh, wave of immigration of Yiddish speakers to do something big, uh, and actually. Uh, your people describe it as you know a, 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 a you know a Yiddish fest, a, a holiday of Yiddish. It was so festive, uh, and it was such an, so emotional. And the Jerusalem theater uh, was um, was packed, and people were sitting in the aisles. And uh, everyone was people came on their own expenses from all over the world, and here Yiddish is reviving but it didn't give much. The year 70 to, I would say to 87 and 87, 90, until the establishment of the Yiddish pill, are attempts to create artificial settings of Yiddish. And as I said at the beginning, you can't force a culture. Culture is a natural dynamic. It's a natural evolution. And if you try to put it into all kinds of settings and organizations, it won't work. You see, uh, 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 you see, uh, Ben Gurion and the first and the first governments of Israel they wanted to uh, to to, um, to cut the diasporic past, and it didn't work. Uh, they wanted to uh, to erase the history of um, of East European Jews, and people were flocking to see Fiddler on the Roof. Right, it's about the shtetl. Yeah. So. There is an influence, but there are many factors that work together. So you can't isolate one factor to say this is what created, what shaped the culture. So at this time, there was an attempt of activists to take advantage of the opportunity that there is, there were some writers in this wave of the 1970s who were, First class writers, it was Shechman, who, there was Eli Sheftman, or there was Joseph Kegler, who was very active. And um, they thought that there is an opportunity to do something. But you can't do things in an, in, an, in an artificial way. You have to, this is a natural dynamics. And although there was some kind of success, but it declined slowly, slowly, slowly until uh, it, it disappeared. And there was, uh, Golda Meir created the Prize for Yiddish Literature, Prime Minister's Prize for Yiddish Literature, and there was the Zygmander Prize uh, Award. But all this slowly, slowly disappeared.
0: You end Chapter 7 with the following words. The flip side of Yiddish's inferiority was its folksiness, or put more positivity, its authenticity. And that was expressed in its humor. Yiddish was widely perceived not only as a language of jokes, but as a language whose very sound was funny. Can you comment on the role of humor in Israeli expressions of Yiddish? What contribution did Yiddish make to Israeli humor?
1: Okay, so this is a very important characteristic of the attitude of Yiddish. Uh, Because Mm. of many reasons, and one of them is Sholmelechem comic work, Yiddish was perceived as a funny language. Yeah. At the same time, and this was uh, in outside Israel, right? Yeah. Tell me a joke in Yiddish. Oh, I can, oh, yes, I can tell you a joke. I'm not interested in a joke. I'm interested yeah. in serious literature, but okay. But there was another thing. Um, the attitude to Yiddish in the pre-state was of patronizing. And uh, Dan Meron explained it in a very uh, sophisticated way, patronizing it by ridiculing it. So laughing at it in a bad way, something, you know, ah, you hear a word in Yiddish, ha, 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 it's so funny, They're very, so it goes both, both ways. And one of the, of the anchors of the bad attitude to Yiddish, they, I mean, the disrespect for Yiddish was, ah, something that you laugh at it. It's not something that you laugh with it, you laugh at it. But you hear Yiddish, oh, it's funny, it's hilarious. It says something in Yiddish, it's hilarious because the very fact that it's in Yiddish. And at the the same time, Yiddish is a language of jokes. So this this had a major influence of the uh, inferior status that Yiddish had at the beginning at the first years of the state. However, at the same time, what I argue is that all these people, they say Yiddish is foxy, Yiddish is warm. And I say that they patronize it by saying it. It has an upside. You know, I read in the newspapers an interview with a teenager who studied Yiddish in high school. And he said, "Wow, well, I studied it because it's funny and there are many jokes. But he studied it. So many people were, the first access to Yiddish was, this was the first, the first crack in the wall that attracted them to Yiddish. But when they opened the window to Yiddish, they saw that it's not ridiculous, it's not, it's not hilarious because it's Yiddish, but there is something there. Many people started their interest in Yiddish because they thought it's funny and folksy and warm and were attracted by it. But then they started taking a serious interest in it, so it, it it worked both ways. And many people who went to see, for example, Yiddish play because it's funny, it's hilarious, all of a sudden were fascinated by it. So this is why I think it worked both ways.
0: I am extremely grateful for you being so generous with your time as to participate in this interview. Uh, the final question I'd like to ask you is the following: What are you working on now as your subsequent project?
1: Okay, so I'm I'm writing a book about um, the Yiddish writer and Holocaust survivor uh, Rochel who the last twenty years of her life was a Yiddish writer in Israel, but she wrote about her experience in the, in the Holocaust and other things. So, and this should be some kind of subsequent project of this project.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thank Uh, you very much. I've been absolutely blessed to have had the honor of this interview. I know I've been humbled at how much I learned from this book and from this dialogue. And our our listeners no less. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for giving me the the opportunity to present my book.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It's it's absolutely a privilege. Uh to our listeners um this is Ari Barbalat for the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Um, This has been Rachel Rojanski sharing her wisdom from her book, Yiddish in Israel, a History, published by Indiana University Press 2020. Thank you.